I love the uh, little word picture there when Kim Smith asked the little girl, what's her name, Susanna? Savannah, Savannah. Jester, yeah, you know, you might ask, where have all the dinosaurs gone? And she sits there and she goes, <laughs> and I'm sitting behind the podium going, <laughs> great little word picture. There's a lot of things that we still don't know. There's still a lot of mystery and wonder that we can actually celebrate as Christ followers. The word of the Lord for us today comes from the end of Matthew 11's chapter. This is what is known as dominical teaching, Latin there for the Lord. This, these are words actually from, directly from the mouth of Jesus. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord Jesus, you are still alive today. You are still the Lord of heaven and earth. You are still drawing men and women and boys and girls to yourself. Your promise that I will never leave you or forsake you is still true and we stand on it today. So Lord, help us to hear your word to us this morning. Come to me. Come to me. Learn of me. Come and find rest for your souls. Come to me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. This is the warmest, most compelling altar call Jesus ever gave in the four Gospels. Jesus does not stand and wag his finger at us or tap his foot and fold his arms across his chest, frowning at the ways we've disappointed him. He doesn't hold his nose when he gets close to us because we have had such a crummy week of trying to follow him. No. He calls out to us and welcomes us. He is God incarnate, but he does not overwhelm us with his power or bully us into belief. He invites us. He draws us. He woos our hearts to come to him. And they did. Mark chapter 1 tells us that people streamed to him from everywhere. And then he lists the cities. 
we read that the whole city gathered at the door where he was staying, and he went out to them. All of them camped out in the front yard, and he healed the sick, and he preached God's good word to them. We read in Mark that so many came to Jesus that he could no longer meet in town. He had to go to wide open spaces, so there was a lot of room for everybody. Do you know that, Jesus? Do you know the Jesus that is still drawing people to him everywhere? On another occasion, Mark chapter 2, so many people were crowding around him that there was no room in the house or outside the house. So some stout-hearted friends climbed up on the roof, tore open a hole in the roof, and dropped their friend down through the opening in order to get this paralyzed man right into the presence of Jesus. That's what good friends do. They don't save people. We don't save people, but we bring people to Jesus. And Mark tells us that story early in his gospel to underscore there's no freedom of movement in our lives until we bring ourselves to Jesus. The gracious will of God from one cover of the Bible to the other is to welcome And have fellowship with the little ones, the little people, little children. Jesus actually gives thanks to his great Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that he works in this counterintuitive, surprising way. Watch how this unfolds in the Gospels. The uber-religious, the moralistic, the very well-behaved people who think their seats are already booked in heaven find themselves standing outside Jesus' gracious kingdom. While humble sinners, wretched sufferers, are welcomed in. It is the wild living scoundrel of a son who repents and returns to his father and falls into his welcoming arms under the weight of his guilt and shame. But it's the hard-working, dutiful son who stands outside his father's house, indignant that his father should be so reckless and free with his forgiving love. And it's the man bent over in guilt and shame, beating his breast at the back of the sanctuary, begging for mercy from God, who Jesus says goes home and is justified. While the Pharisee, who stands conspicuously up front, thanking God that he's doing quite well, thank you very much, much better than these common sinners around him. This is the gospel. And we better not think we know who the little ones are. We better not come up with a who's who of little people. I learned this lesson a hard way 
we were doing evangelism down at Fort Lauderdale. Spring break, hundreds of thousands of college students. We went down. We were on the beach. We had gathered a crowd. We were talking about Jesus, telling good stories. And suddenly a man who had gotten trapped on the inside of that cluster of people, he got up in dignity and bolted out of the crowd and left. He was a big man, had to be a football player. And around his neck, he had a gold chain that was as thick as my little finger. And hanging from the gold chain was a lion's claw. I kid you not. He was a mountain of a man. And he got up and left. And some of my friends kind of rolled their eyes like good riddance. But I watched him. He didn't go far. He stood at the back just close enough so he could still hear and listen to what we were saying. So I grabbed the little student next to me. I said, that's our man. Let's go get him. This little student had these big, wide eyes, like terrified, like I'm not. But we'll go up and we talk to this fella. And one short conversation later, He is talking about how his life has fallen apart ever since he moved down there and thought he was going to have the good life. And then tears began to fall down his face, literally, this big guy, as we told him about Jesus. That's the way of God. That's the gospel that Jesus brings to us and pictures for us. It's got a word. It's got a name. We just sang it. It's grace. And it is amazing that God works that way. Do we preach this good news, this gospel so readily and so radically that our houses and front lawns, our dinner tables are so filled with neighbors who want to hear us talk about Jesus? Do we see the crowds as Jesus did with compassion, so harassed by our culture, thrown down by all of its empty promises like sheep without a shepherd? Do we see it that way? And do we pray for more of this compassion as often as we pray for his protection? Do we pray to show mercy as much as we ask him for traveling mercy? Are we really Asking Jesus to make us into his image. I think we have Philip's disease. It's my name for it. John 14, Philip says, Lord, just show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. And Jesus replies, have I been with you so long And you still don't know me, Philip? That's Philip's disease. Is that true of your heart this morning? You still don't know Jesus after many years? There's a quote from John Calvin on your church website in the beginning. 
It says the gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue. It's of our life. It can't be grasped by reason and memory only, but it's fully understood when it possesses our whole soul and penetrates to the inner resources of the heart. That's a beautiful quote. When we become over-churched people. Amen? Maybe I can get a little amen for that one. (laughs) It has to penetrate and capture our hearts. So we can slowly replace our first love of Jesus with ideas, definitions, concepts, good behavior. Those are all good things. We begin to talk about grace. We talk about the Bible. We talk about the cross. We talk about mercy. But they begin to edge out our talk about Jesus. We can be Bible-believing, spirit-filled, grace-oriented, and commit ourselves to the right denomination. But all of this will only be Christian to the extent that it is always and only focused on Jesus. It's always come to me. I was reading a John Garrick book. He's a very famous author, fly fisherman out in Colorado. And he's talking about knowing his buddies who are fly fishing enthusiasts. And he says, when you're around these cats, it doesn't take more than three minutes, whatever the topic of the conversation is, before they say, you know, that's a little like fly fishing. (laughs) Three minutes. Did you know in the book of Philippians, there are 104 verses And there's something like 64 references to Jesus Christ. Paul can't go two sentences without talking about Jesus. People expect a fly fishing enthusiast to talk about fly fishing. Right? COVID was bad for the church in North America. But I think Philip's disease is worse. We don't come to church so we can go to heaven. We come to church to be with Jesus, to learn more of him, to bring our broken lives one more time when Jesus says, come to me. Yes, yes. Here's an old wonderful quote from a Scottish pastor. He writes, learn much about the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. He's altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace for sinners. He says, live much in the smiles of God. Isn't that good? Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settle upon you in love and fall into his almighty arms yet again. That's what we do as Christians. This joy in my Lord Jesus and my confidence in Christ that no one knows the Father but the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him this joy and this confidence in Christ. That's what I want. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. The absolute uniqueness of Jesus Christ 
in our very pluralistic society. All things, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's hard. I mean, we just have to say it. That is a part of our teaching of Christ. Church's teaching, that is not easy. So first, I want to talk about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to confidence, not embarrassment. And then I want to talk about the missing ingredient of joy in our lives. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things. Absolutely everything that we need to know about God has been placed in and revealed through Jesus Christ. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All of it, everything. He is the final revelation of God. In the fullness of time, all the fullness of that scarlet thread roving through the whole Old Testament about the coming Messiah, all of that was fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. All of it. All things. And yet, when we're honest and we're thoughtful and we read a lot today, it's easy for us to say, well, I like Jesus, but I'm embarrassed about his claim to exclusivity. We have a very exclusive Christ in a very inclusive age. So, people in our culture advise us. They say something like this. The way to get along with everybody today is to believe whatever you want. Just as long as you don't believe it's true. Just as long as you don't believe you're right. Then you can believe whatever you want. But just don't, in the public square, say that this is right. It's cool to talk about spiritualities today. It's not so cool to talk about Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Everybody, most everybody in the world, loves the moral teachings of Jesus. Read some of the prophets, authors, proponents of other world religions. They don't struggle with the moral teaching of Jesus. They think it's good. Just don't say what Jesus himself said. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But logically, we have to be careful about saying, he's a fantastic teacher. But he was deeply deceived about his own identity. What kind of man can be a great teacher who's confused about his own identity? Peter says in Acts 4.12, there's salvation to no one else. There's no other name under heaven. No other name given among men by which we must be saved. So neither Jesus himself nor his apostles are embarrassed to talk about the exclusivity of Christ. For the unique sickness of my soul, our souls, 
There's only one remedy. And if you think we live in a pluralist society, it's nothing compared to all the competing gods and goddesses of the pluralist first century Roman Empire. Just this weekend, the Saturday edition of the Wall Street Journal, there was an essay entitled, The Competition for Believers in Africa is Transforming Both Christianity and Islam. It talks about competition and clashing between major religions in Nigeria for the souls of men and women, which happens to be where my daughter and her family are right now, central Nigeria. My point, all of that culture outside of these walls is not neutral. There is no such thing as a naked public square. No one leaves home without their values and commitments. Pure objectivity in the marketplace is just a myth. There are many stalls in the marketplace of ideas, philosophies, and religions that want to capture your soul and the souls of your children. In that case, why would we hide our light under a bushel? Why are we so embarrassed to talk about Jesus? What if the claims of Christ here lead us to confidence rather than arrogance? What if they empowered us to go out knowing he's the only way rather than embarrass us? What if we simply take Jesus at his word and actually expected him to do what he does so well, to draw people to himself. What if we actually expected that? To confess this uniqueness of Christ doesn't necessarily have to be tribal or arrogant. I know in a pluralist culture that it could sound that way, except for one thing. There is no one else who offers what Jesus offers. He's not offering us something He's offering us himself. He comes and calls us to receive the blessing of himself, of life in him, not to come and get things from him. We're not forgiven and justified as ends in themselves, but we're forgiven and justified so that we can be in Christ. That's what it's all about. British theologian Michael Reeves puts it this way. It's just plain nonsense to think of Jesus as just another religious stall in the crowded marketplace of ideas. He doesn't give us that option. So let me make a couple suggestions here, and then we'll do joy. So what would I say is some recommendations how to live faithfully in a world filled with differences? In a democratic society where Christianity is no longer in a privileged position, What should our posture towards neighbors who believe very different than me, what should it be? First, four things it shouldn't be. Then I'm going to give you four things that I think it should be, quickly. First, we are not called to be cultural heroes. We are not called to conquer our culture politically or impose our convictions on everybody else. Second, we're not called to become giant intellectuals who can silence all rival narratives. God just doesn't work that way. 
3, neither are we called to retreat from the world into our safe, private, sheltered communities. And four, we are definitely not called to be authoritarian or arrogant. So what are we called to do? Listen to this. We are called to demonstrate the robust power of humility before others. Two, we are called to a respectful tolerance of all those others who frustrate us to treat them with mutual sensitivity, respect, and cooperation wherever possible. Three, we are called to bless those who curse us, to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Take them a meal when they're sick. Pray for their children. Forgive them for their injuries to us. In short, love our enemies, just like Jesus did. And fourth, we're called to be hopeful. We're called to a hopeful patience that confronts the viruses of pessimism and cynicism that are just wasting away lives around us. You know that. People around you are filled with cynicism and pessimism. They're not hopeful about anything except maybe the meal tonight or something new on Netflix that's coming out on July 2nd. You know, that's what they're hopeful about. How countercultural would it be for us to actually live those four points that Jesus taught us? What quiet confidence it would give us to live this way that Jesus taught us and watch him call people to himself through our faithful witness to an upside-down kingdom. Confidence, not embarrassment. Finally, If confidence in Christ is seriously lacking in our witness before the world today, it's our lack of joy, lack of joyfulness in our lives. The psalmist complained that he lived in a dry and weary land where there was no water. Yeah, I I could write that now. A dry and weary land where there's no water. So where do I find joy in this passage? You'll see. The way to find joy in this passage about the yoke stuff. First of all, my wife was telling me this morning, she says, you need to explain to them what a yoke is because they don't know what a yoke is anymore. Okay, a yoke is this big, huge wooden crossbar that you'd put on top of an ox or a pair of oxen and then you'd strap to it all these heavy loads that they're supposed to pull. That's a yoke. It is a way to make a beast of burden carry the heavy loads we can't pull ourselves. Jesus doesn't call us to come to him and get saved, but to come to him, take his yoke on us, and learn from him. It's a call to discipleship, not conversion. But when we hear that, mostly the word that we trigger on is that word yoke. And we say something like, I thought we were saved by grace. Isn't it unconditional? What's this stuff about a yoke? I thought we were sheep. What's this about calling us oxen and asses? He said that, not me. But what we don't hear 
is the little two-letter word in front of it, the word my. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And what he's actually saying, and this is really key, he's saying, you're already wearing yokes. Exchange the ones that you are wearing that are making you weary and heavy laden. Exchange those for my yoke because my yoke is easy. The little Greek word there, Christos, means most of the time it's translated kind. Mine is easy. A woman in Charlottesville inherited a mansion from her second husband out Barracks Road. If some of you know where that is, that's nice territory out there. She had this humongous house all to herself now. And one night an electrical fire burned the whole place to the ground. And she's standing outside in the night, and these firemen are working. One of them notices she's not in a bad mood. (laughs) She's actually smiling. And he says, what's your problem? Don't you realize you've just lost it all? And she turned to him and said, free, free at last. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? There are yokes that we are already wearing. Kind of slavery to live always for the approval of others. A kind of burden to base our identity and worth on our physical appearance, our zip code, or the size of our house, or how green our lawn is. It's a heavy yoke to define the meaning of our lives by our successes and accomplishments. Those are the yokes that weigh us down. And Jesus says, take mine. The movie, The Help, based on the book by Catherine Sockett, uh, there's a scene near the end of this movie. It's about The Help, black house workers and nannies in the southern towns. And there is a scene near the end where Abilene, who is a help, and she throughout the movie has been quiet, respectful and submissive to Miss Hilly, who has given her, you know what, the whole movie. But at the end, there is this great, great line. Abilene says, All you do is scare and lie to get what you want, Miss Hilly. You a godless woman. Aren't you tired, Miss Hilly? Do you hear that? That's what we're talking about today. Isn't that perceptive? That that's what she accuses her of. Aren't you tired living this way? So I'll close with that. Ain't you tired? The way Abilene would say it. That's the question Jesus puts to us, this warm, tender invitation to come to him. To all of us who are weary and heavy laden, tired of always needing to get our own way, weary of keeping up appearances, Jesus invites us to exchange our yoke for his, because his is easy. 
and it gives rest to our souls. Joy. Joy comes when we lay down our burdens and follow Jesus. Isaiah 55, 12, Jesus, unless Jesus sets us free, when Jesus sets us free, sorry, we will go out in joy and be led forth in peace and the mountains and hills will burst into song and all the trees of the field will clap, will clap their hands. Jesus doesn't call us to being a really good person. He doesn't call us to be dutiful. Surprisingly, he calls us to joy. He says, I want my joy to be full in you. How different our witness would be in this world if it was filled with more of the quiet, not arrogant, quiet confidence that Jesus is the way. And how delightful it would be if it was dressed up in joy. Let me pray for us. Lord, we have heard your voice even through this fallible preacher and all of my own baggage. Lord, we have heard your voice this morning through your words to come to you to take your yoke and learn of you. Lord, let it not stop here in 15 minutes, but throughout this Sabbath day, let us remember your invitation to find rest for our souls in you. Lord, help us to bask in your smiles to know that you're not wagging your finger at our failures, but that the way of the gospel is to welcome sinners broken, to preach the gospel to the poor, to set captives free, to cleanse lepers, to open the eyes of the blind. Lord, that's your way, Jesus. It's thrilling to think about your compassionate heart. But may we start by knowing it first ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.